we could just all go home after those great praises, and they totally go along with what we studied this week. So do your brains feel bigger this week? Thank you for tackling this work and um, finding joy in it, and I loved it too. Okay, I can get my stuff. We have reason to celebrate today. In fact, we have lots of them. We've heard about some of the reasons just from, from you all in this praise and share time. And my reason for this lesson was I want us to leave from here today determined as a believer to wake up each day celebrating the incredible gifts that we have through Jesus Christ. And we heard some of them already. We serve a very generous God. There's a singer I like named Cece Winan, and she has just got some fun songs. And she has this one CD. I listen to it a lot in the car, and it's, He's so good, he's so good. And she has a line in it and says, He's a wonder in my soul. And that's what I'm hoping today, that we have this idea of what a wonder these incredible gifts from God are, so much so that I can't even grasp them. But I will walk through each day celebrating these gifts from God. In this chapter and a half we looked at, we find six of the most amazing gifts in the world. We sang about some of them today. We heard about some of them today. And it makes me realize, no wonder... Paul was so upset with these Galatians, these wonderful gifts. It was like they were having a big birthday party, and everybody was celebrating, and then the Judaizers came rushing into the party, started taking presents and running out the door. The Judaizers were the original party poopers. (laughs) Crashing in on the Galatians' party, their celebration once they had received Christ. So Paul's saying to them, Why did you invite these guys to your party in the first place? Why are you letting them steal your gifts and head out the door? He can't even imagine it. Why, when you've been celebrating these incredible gifts, why let these people steal your joy in the truths of who you are in Jesus Christ. I wish we could have been there when these Galatians in these four towns came to understand who Jesus was. And we think about it, okay, yeah, they, Paul and Barnabas went into their area. It's, it's kind of huge. You're minding your own business. You're going to the marketplace. You're doing your deal. If you're uh, going to the synagogue, you're going there. And these two guys show up and start teaching about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, in the synagogues, and in the streets. And for the first time, as you listen to them, day after day after day, all of a sudden, life starts to make sense for the first time in your life. Because for the first time in your life, God begins to make sense. Because Jesus Christ has defined God. Jesus Christ has illuminated who God is. And so as Paul speaks about who Jesus is, the reality of who God is comes alive in their hearts. They were separated. If they were Jews, they were separated by their legalism. If they were Gentiles, they were separated by their ignorance. And now they begin to understand who he is. And think about what that would be like. There 
would be weeping together and laughing. There was worship. There was prayer. There was singing. And it was such rich fellowship. And guess who was in the middle of the party with them? Paul and Barnabas. And all of a sudden, Paul's looking up right here and says, Hey, what happened to the celebration? Where did everybody go? Look at Galatians 3.1 with me. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Okay, why would he call them foolish here? We've talked about this the last two weeks. They're trying to combine these gifts of Christ with their works of Moses and somehow come up with a better plan for salvation. They're trying to mix these things. And I think they were unaware of this statement I read, to supplement Jesus is to supplant Jesus. They're thinking, we're just supplementing Jesus, but in reality, they're supplanting Jesus. And they were embracing a doctrine. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. That was saying the death of Jesus was not necessary. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law... Christ died for nothing. That's why he's calling them foolish. When they set aside the grace of God, they are setting aside all of the gifts and the packages that God has wrapped and ready for them, and they're ignoring them in the corner of a room. Paul says, were you bewitched? Meaning, the evil eye, really. Does somebody have an evil eye cast a spell on you? He knows that's not the answer. He says, you don't have any excuse because I taught you to fix your eyes on the cross. And it says he portrayed Jesus to them. He portrayed the cross to them. And that means if you had something you wanted everyone to know, it means literally to make like a big billboard and carry it into a marketplace to visibly portray what you want people to know. This is what that word means. And Paul had done this. He was a dynamic preacher. So when these Galatians were coming to hear him talk, and they're on these stone floors, and they're sitting at his feet, and he begins to describe to them the hammer going through Jesus' hands and feet, they could almost hear it. When he starts talking about the blood of Christ coming from his side and going down the cross, they could almost see it. When he tells them that Jesus says, it is finished, they can almost hear Jesus' voice. He has proclaimed to them the cross in such a way that they have personally and powerfully experienced the power behind the cross. And now they're turning their gaze. They had their gaze on the cross. They're turning their gaze once again to works and to legalism and to the law. And these Judaizers are leading them in that direction. In fact, in that verse we know Paul's not entirely blaming the Galatians because when he says, who has bewitched you? I think Paul wasn't really asking that question to know the answer. He already knew the answer. 
Who? He's pointing at the Judaizers. You. You are trying to take away the gifts from God. You legalists. So I want to look today at just six of these gifts that we can celebrate because we know Christ. So look at verse 2 in chapter 3. Paul says, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? The first gift is the gift of the Spirit. And did you notice in these passages, Paul just asks them four very obvious questions. He doesn't even answer the questions because the answers are so obvious. And here's his first question. How did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive it when you were following the law, trying to be good, or when you heard the gospel and you came to Christ? We received the Spirit at our conversion. That's the obvious answer. That's when they received it. And the Galatians totally remember that experience when they came to Christ. It made me think about uh, Ted. We laugh because Davey Noggle, who is a wonderful professor at DBU, uh, was in Ted's Young Life Club as a kid. Now, at that time, Ted was in college when he was leading the Young Life Club, and he was probably 19 years old. He went and did a skit at Young Life one week, and they said the next week, would you come back and do another skit? And when he got there, they said, this is your club. Take over. <laughs> and Ted wasn't raised in a Christian home, and so Davy remembers. Davy was this faithful attender as a kid coming to listened to Ted's teaching week after week, and one day he came up to Ted and said, how do you get the Holy Spirit? And Ted had no clue. <laughs> and so he thought for a while, and he said, the Holy Spirit is inside of everyone, and it just comes alive at different times in your life. <laughs> so we always like to tease Ted about uh, the fact that he was pretty unclear about that, and now Davy's this professor, so... I wanted to go back and mention this, that before Christ finished his work on the cross, how did the Holy Spirit manifest itself? God chose who it would be upon, Moses, David, Deborah, Mary, John the Baptist, to accomplish his will. But Jesus tells his followers before he leaves, that's going to change. Look at John 14. Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So when Jesus ascends, you know the story of Pentecost in Acts. The followers, the men and women that love Jesus are in one place together. All of a sudden, the rushing of wind throughout the house, the place where they are, fire, flames of fire above each of their heads, And the Spirit arrives just as Jesus promised. It is one of the most incredible gifts that we have from God. Sealed. Sealed forever by the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to wake up each day thinking, was I good enough? Am I lost? Am I in good with God? We are sealed. Look at Ephesians 4. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
The men and women of Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Antioch received the scepter salvation, and that's why he's asking them these questions. His second question, how will you be sanctified, he says to them. Here's what he means. Did you think you could come to Christ in one way, faith, but continue in Christ in another way, works? No, on your outline, the means of justification and sanctification are the same. The Spirit of God. Justification is our position before God, declared righteous, and sanctification is our spiritual maturing in God. Both are works of the Holy Spirit. Then he says, did you suffer in vain? Most theologians think the best way to interpret that word suffer is is not persecution, is experience. So what he's saying is, did you experience all these great gifts from God in vain? Have you had these wonderful experiences for no purpose? You cannot mix your faith in Christ with works and think that you're going to be in God's will. Think that you will be accomplishing the promises and the will of God. He says you may as well forget it. His fourth question, on what basis did God give his spirit and perform his miracles? Remember in Iconium it said that they were there and Paul and Barnabas, the spirit, they were speaking boldly and the Lord confirmed their message with miracles and wonders. In Lystra, remember Paul heals that man that's been lame from birth. Did these things happen because of the works of the law? Paul is saying to them, when I was there, you guys, you Gentiles, you didn't even know the law. How could the works of the miracles of God come along with the law? You heard what you heard. It was the gospel of justification by faith, and that's when God was doing a mighty work with miracles. On your outline, God's work of the Spirit and miracles are a result of faith. I can imagine how frustrated Paul is. He's looking at them saying, you've already received the Spirit. You cannot repackage it and send it back to God. There's another package that's in the room when we celebrate Christ, and that's the gift of justification. We talked about it being declared righteous, and I can't really think of any greater gift to be able to stand before my Creator Guilty of my sin, yet clothed in the righteousness of his Son? Justified before God? Look at Jude 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord. This was God's plan from the beginning. He has always desired and forever will desire to have a relationship with us. Think about Adam and Eve. Did God just create them, stick them in a garden and go do his thing? He walked in fellowship with Adam and Eve. He knew Moses as a friend, David, and he still seeks us today. But here's the issue. How can he unite fallen man with a holy God? Through rules, through list-keeping, through works? No, 
Paul's saying it never was that. And it never will be that. Man makes it that. It's always been through faith in him and his promises. On your outline, from the time of Adam's fall, faith has been the only means of man becoming right with God. Now, the Judaizers, they wanted to pretend this gift never existed. That from the very beginning of the Jewish race, God justified through works. And they think, hey, piece of cake, we got the Old Testament and Moses on our side. So Paul has to debate that. He wants to say, okay, look at this box, this gift of justification by faith. Guess who opened that gift first? Abraham got to open that for the first, being the first Jewish person to do that. He did that. And you guys are letting it sit in a corner and collect dust. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, 6. Paul says, Consider Abraham. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, the father of the Jews. And he quotes Genesis 15 to say Abraham believed God and that's what reckoned him as righteous. He took God at his word. He trusted God, he abandoned his plans and surrendered to God's plans for his life. He did all that as a demonstration of a big act of faith. When did Abraham believe? believe? What did he believe? Look at verse uh, 12 of Genesis on your verse sheet. God had said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Guess how many years went by before Abraham received the sign of the Jewish race, circumcision? Fourteen years. The law, the acts of the law, those things weren't even around when he was justified by faith in God. And look at verse 8 again. Circle this word. It's pretty exciting. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced what? The gospel. The gospel began all the way back with Abraham. Justification by faith. The gospel was first spoken to Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish race. And why is it the gospel? Because we believe that Abraham's descendant would fulfill the promises to bless all the nations, if we have faith in that descendant, just like Abraham, we are justified by faith. The Judaizers say at this point, ah, that was before Moses and the law came around. That was the new way God wanted to deal with us. So this is all not valid. Paul responds in verse 17. What I mean is this, he says, the law introduced 430 years later doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God and do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it's no longer depending on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham. 
through a promise. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited that you can't nullify a promise of God. Can you imagine what that would be like for us today? To not know what God might be feeling that day, what kind of mood he was in? Wouldn't that be scary to go through the day not really knowing if the promises of God were going to hold up for you on that day? Paul's saying that's ridiculous. Now, 430 years had gone by since we heard Abraham's covenant repeated from Jacob, his descendant. From Jacob to Moses, 430 years. 2,000 years plus later, we still have that same message. Coming to God through faith. On your outline, but to rely on our works for justification is to be condemned. Look at verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by these things. The law is a curse. This made me think I've told this story before my sister when she was young. My neighbor on Elm Street, when we were little girls, had gone out and she had this little area about this long along the side of her house, which was just like a flower bed. And she had gone out and planted a row of flowers. And I think my sister as a little girl, it was just way too tempting for her to see those perfect stems with with one bloom in a row all along the house. So she had to get the scissors. And so she went out and then along the deal and cut the top off of every flower along the side of the house. I don't know what she did with the flowers. She didn't put them in our bedroom, I know that. Next thing she knows, her, you know, my mom and dad have her and say, Dawn, did you cut the flowers at the neighbors? No, no. Dawn, did you cut? No. She just denies it, denies it, denies it. And then my dad was smart enough to say, would you maybe say that you cut one flower? Maybe one. (laughs) Guilty. Immediately, she is guilty. And that is Paul's Paul's point here. If you even break one point of the law, you are condemned. You are guilty. Verse 10 says you have to continue to do everything. That means the law demands perfection. Look at James 2. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Would that be a plan of a God that loves us? To expect us to come to him in that kind of a way? Even Paul, the Jew of all Jews, The Pharisee of all Pharisees said, I tried. I tried in my life to do it. I couldn't even do it myself. Look at Romans 7. Paul says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. The law exposed all the sins of Paul. Look at the next part. Paul's trying to explain the problem with the Jewish thinking. For I can testify that they're zealous for God, but their zeal's not based on knowledge. 
Since they didn't know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And in those verses I read, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Why would he do that? Because they try to claim that that's where they get their faith. That's where they know that it's through the law and works. It's from the Old Testament. So Paul says, okay, what about Habakkuk where it says the righteous will live by faith? What about Leviticus that says the man who lives by the law has to keep the whole law? He's saying if you think the law is based on faith, you are wrong. Those who choose the law for justification have to live by it perfectly. Which leads to the next gift. Since they could not do that, we are given the gift of redemption. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You guys know the song, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Second verse says, I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. I sing because I cannot be quiet. His love is the theme of my song. What a gift. Redemption. This was a word, redeemed, that was used pretty commonly back in the Jewish times, and it meant to buy a slave's freedom. The price that Jesus paid was high enough to redeem all of mankind from the slavery of sin. 1 Peter 1. It is not with silver or gold that you redeem from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, your faith and your hope are in God. In ancient Judaism, if someone was executed, if the Jews executed someone, they usually stoned them to death. Then they would take them and put their body on a post that was a kind of a type of a tree. They would put them on that post. They would make it a public display. They would leave them on that post until the sun set and people began to walk away disinterested. The person on the tree was a sign that they had been rejected by God. It was a picture of Jesus Christ and what he would do for us rejected by God, to give us his gift of redemption. To hang on the tree wasn't the curse. You were hung on the tree because you were cursed. Jesus didn't become a curse because he was crucified. He was crucified because he was cursed when he took all of our sin on himself. 1 Peter 2.24, I didn't get it in your, your notes, but it says, by his wounds we've been healed. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. Why did he do it? On your outline we just read two reasons. He redeemed us so that Abraham's blessing of salvation will become our blessing. He bore that curse. 
for us. And he also says there he redeemed us so that we can receive God's spirit. What is the result of this redemption? What's another gift at this party? And it's the gift of freedom because the world is a prisoner of sin. I read about these two brothers, Harold and Johnny, I think. Yeah, Harold and Johnny. They were little guys walking home together from school one day, coming out through walking through a field to get home. And these four teenage guys they'd never seen in their life came up to them and just tackled them. And here I'm Johnny, we're like, what are you doing? We don't know you. Leave us alone. And they're laughing and kind of beat them up a little bit and then tie ropes around them. Just tie them, tie them, tie them. Kick them a while. Don't hurt them too much. Just kind of laugh at them. And then the bullies run off. And Harold says, I was really glad to see him go. But then I tried to get up. And they had tied them together so perfectly and tied their hands and their arms that they could not get up. And so the day went on, and then the afternoon was gone, and then the night came. He said we were lying on the ground in a field looking up at the stars in the dark, unable to get away from these ropes that tied us. And all of a sudden, they heard in the dark the voice of their dad, who was kind of retracing their steps on the way to school. And, of course, he found them and untied them. And I love that story because that's us. We didn't get to come up with a plan on how to get to God. We could not be good enough. So we're tied up. We're enchained. We're slaves to our sin. We're like in the darkness lying on the ground. That's how helpless we are. And God gives us the gift of redemption and comes to us calling our name and unties us because we've accepted his son. The gift of freedom. So why did God give the law then? Look at verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. If the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ, might be given to those who believe. First we see in here the law was a means for restraining sin. It was given because of our transgressions, a way to check sin. In fact, look at 1 Timothy 1. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know the law wasn't made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, for ungodly and the sinful. It's a way that God used to restrain sin. But going along with that on your outline, the law exposes the depth of our sinfulness. Paul says this, I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. And then he says this, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress any, any time in your life? I know Julie had given me that once. Opening chapter, 
I want to read what happens. This man says, I walked through the wilderness of this world. I sat down at a certain place where there was a den. I laid myself down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, a great burden upon his back. And I looked and saw him open the book and read it. And as he read, he began to weep and he trembled. And not being able to contain it anymore, he broke out with a lamentable cry saying, What shall I do? A short while later, this man encountered Evangelist, the man writing this, who said to this man, Why do you cry? And the pilgrim answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And then Evangelist pointed the pilgrim toward a gate in the distance, a light beyond it, and a hill, and with the great burden on his back and the book in his hand, Pilgrim started off toward the hill, crying out, Life, life, eternal life. The law exposes the depth of our sinfulness. Now, it wasn't a wrong thing, the purpose of the law, but in these verses we see it was inferior. And the reason we can see that is, you might have kind of wondered about the mediator thing. When the law was given to Moses, it says that angels were involved with that, and Moses was involved with that, and then they took the law to the Jewish people. And if you think about that time, remember on Mount Sinai, smoke, fire, don't look, forbiddenness of don't get too close to the mountain for the people downstairs. It was a terrifying kind of a moment for the people. And now compare that to when God meets Abraham. He goes as his friend, friend to friend, and it's just God because he's got a message this time so precious. God alone goes to share it. It's about faith. It's about him. It's the promise of intimacy. That is why promise is superior to what it was like for Moses and the angels. They needed mediators. They needed to go to the people. God alone comes. And it's different because it's a promise. Because when it's one-on-one, and I'm telling you I'm going to give you something, that's a promise, rather than all these things that were happening with the law. The birth of the law, the law leads us to Christ so we can be freed from our sin. Galatians 3.23, let's look at that. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. I read this great quote. It said this, We cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first gone to Moses to be condemned. Once you've gone to Moses and acknowledged your guilt and your sin, You must not stay there. We must let Moses send us to Christ. That is what the law did. That is what the law intended to do. We are given then the gift of freedom. Never to go back again to prison. Never again to be slaves to sin. 
never again to be tied up and left in the darkness. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That was his plan. What happens to us positionally? Look at verse 26. We get the gift of an inheritance. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. All who believe in him become sons of God. Look at John 1.12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent, but born of God. You know, the world likes to consider that God is the father of all men. But God is not the father of all men redemptively. God's true spiritual children are those who have placed their faith in his son. And he says here, all, all classes, all gender, whatever, we are all part of God's family then. I read about Lawrence of Arabia, that British scholar and soldier. He was invited to go help out with the Paris peace talks because a lot of the people there trusted him. Lots of Arab leaders came to Paris as well. And when the Arab leaders came and got in their hotel, they were shocked when they got into their bathrooms because they could turn a handle and have unlimited amounts of water come into their sink, come into their tubs, So when the time was over, the Paris peace talks are done, they're heading home, they turn to Lawrence and say, you know, we took those magical handles with us. (laughs) Which makes sense. They're thinking, we got to have one of these back home. And so he had to explain to them, these are useless unless they're connected to a pipe that has a water source. A person that's not connected to the Son cannot be connected to the Father. Trying to get to the Father in our own merit is like as useless as carrying a faucet handle around in our pocket. Paul says, here's how you know when you're connected. You are wearing different clothes. You have on the clothing of Jesus Christ, enveloped in who Christ is. His life, his righteousness... His promises, that's what you wear when you wake up each day. We receive these clothes at our conversion. That's when we're baptized in Christ. He's not talking about water baptism here. He's talking about baptized in the Holy Spirit when we first come to Christ. These were the clothes the Galatians were wearing. These were their party clothes. Paul says, don't take them off and get in those old rags that you used to wear that that don't do one thing for you. Enjoy your party clothes. Another thing we inherit is we're all one in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. A believing Jew is no more privileged than a believing Gentile. A believing master is no more privileged than a believing slave. A believing male is not superior to a believing woman. We are part of a big family. It's an exciting thing. When I was in Israel um, a few years ago, you do a lot of standing in lines in the sun, and we were waiting to go in this church, and so was half the world. So there's like this courtyard, and I want you to envision this courtyard, kind of dusty, 
and lines and lines of people from their tour buses just going around the walls of there. You know, we've been there a while. Well, leaning against one of the walls, someone had made a big wooden cross. And um, it was apropos where it was because we were going into a part where Christ had been. And it was kind of moving to look at that while you were waiting in line. And all of a sudden, a guy goes over to the cross and takes it off the wall and starts pretending he's carrying it like Jesus. Now, he's kind of got an audience because he's out in the middle of this courtyard. So he starts kind of walking through courtyard, making fun of carrying the cross that Christ carried. Well, you could tell who the Christians were. We all kind of stood up and kind of started getting, it made us very uncomfortable. He started getting people to take pictures of him in his tour group. I think they were all lost, that tour group. (laughs) And he kind of carried on and carried on. And I thought, if I could just get up my courage just to go up and say, stop that. This is the suffering of Christ. Quit making fun of it. He, He had it on his back and he was doing a dance and doing all this stuff. And all at once, this older woman from the group from Holland ran up to him and in her Dutch tongue just chewed this guy out. And we were all, yay! All the Christians were so excited. He was shocked. He didn't know what to do. And, you know, she took that cross from him and set it back against the wall, got back in line. What a picture of oneness. Right then, all of us that were believers were thankful. We identified with her. We were smiling at her. We were connected to her just because we both knew Jesus Christ. I didn't know her language. I didn't know anything about her. We were one, everybody that was watching that. That's what we inherit. And we inherit the promise of justification by faith. Look at verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When Abraham had taken his son Isaac because God commanded him to sacrifice him, When he did it, of course, God stopped him from killing his own son and says, because you were willing to give up your only son for me, because you've done this thing, I will bless you, Abraham. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Christ is that seed. We've read that in this passage. Since we are in Christ... We are part of that seed, and we are heirs to the promises of Abraham, and that was that we would have a right relationship with God by believing in him as Abraham did. I want to end real quick with the gift of intimacy. Look at verse 6 in chapter 4. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. What's the relationship of a slave to his master? Fear, shame, distance. When we were slaves to sin, this was our relationship with our father. Fearful, ashamed, distant. Paul saying to them, why are you still acting like slaves? Why are you leaning back into the legalism that is making you once again live out that distance and that coldness and that fear of your creator? Because that's what legalism does. 
Why aren't you opening that package of the gift of intimacy? What a gift. On your outline, our relationship with our God involves confidence and trust as opposed to the fear and distance that legalism brings. God desires intimacy. When Jesus came over a hillside and saw Jerusalem standing out in front of him, remember that story? And he sees the people going back and forth, the people that he loves, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to take you and gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks and take you under my wing. But you were not willing. Your religious system has stopped you from having intimacy with God. But what was Jesus' heart's desire? Intimacy with the people that he loves. We call God Abba, which in Aramaic means daddy, like a little child would say to their father. That is how intimate we are supposed to be with God. We're back to the very beginning. From the beginning, God's desire has been to love us and be loved by us, and he has provided that way. I want you to end with me. Look at, turn to Psalm 103 with me. Psalm 103, verse 7. We'll go like the Judaizers want, all the way back to Moses. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. We have plenty of reasons to celebrate. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that is true, and thank you for these gifts. We just cherish them, Father. We acknowledge them, and we give you all praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is the last day you can sign up for the mini-retreat on Saturday, although you might, can you sign up on Friday?